Okay, I'm stoked. Are you? I grew up with that word. What a great description. Um, open your Bibles, would you, to Ephesians chapter 4. Two things you'll need tonight, a quiet heart and a Bible. And uh, we're going to be studying Ephesians, part of Ephesians chapter 4. There was a 75-year-old man that went to his doctor. He was in re remarkably good health. His doctor wanted to know what his secret was. So he asked him, what do you do to keep yourself so fit? The man said, well, when my wife and I were first married, and we've been married, he said, for over 50 years, we made an agreement. The agreement was, whenever we had an argument, If I lost my temper in the argument, she would remain silent. If she lost her temper in the argument, the agreement was is that I would quietly get up, go outside, and take a walk. <laughs> Doctor, he said, I attribute my health to the long-recognized value of much walking. Paul the Apostle tells us the value of walking in the Spirit, walking in the Lord. If you've read the Bible for any length of time, you know that imagery, don't you? It's very common in the Bible. Our lifestyle is likened into a walk. We're going somewhere. We're making progress. Colossians 2, Paul uses it. As you have therefore received Jesus Christ as Lord... So walk in him. Paul uses it again in Galatians chapter 5. Walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts or the desires of the flesh. John uses it. John, 1 John chapter 1. If we walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So tonight, we look at the walk of the believer. Beginning in chapter 4, that's sort of the theme here. How to walk worthy is the phrase he uses. Don't have a wimpy walk. Have a worthy walk. You can tell a lot about a person by the way they walk. I don't know if you remember high school. But on my campus, we had certain people that walked certain ways, and you could just tell. The jocks walked a certain way. The Dopers walked a certain way. The musicians sort of walked around and bumped into things. And <laughs> there was all sorts of walks, this arrogant walk or stiff walk or, or whatever. You could just tell by the pace of a person. So it is spiritually. You tell a lot about a person inwardly by the way they walk or demonstrate their lifestyle, their fruit, outwardly. There's a story about Dwight Lyman Moody, that evangelist from Chicago in the mid and early part of last century. He was with a friend and they saw another guy and Moody looked at him not knowing the man and said, that guy looks like he's in the army. His friend said, well, you're right, I know him personally, but how do you know? He said, I could tell by the way he walks. He just has that army kind of a walk. I don't know if you watch or keep up with the Guinness Book of World Records or get the book and find out who does what, but 
Fiona Campbell, at least as far as I know, set the world's record in walking. She took it passionately. She started walking in Great Britain when she was 16 years of age. She has crossed four continents and logged, logged by walking 16,000 miles on foot. Now that's attacking something with a great passion, taking walking seriously. It's my prayer, it's our hope, that this will be a strong church in knowledge, in knowing God, in knowing the facts and truth of the Bible, but then also in translating those truths into a walk, becoming strong in a lifestyle. The very purpose for our existence, the very purpose for a midweek Bible study, the reason we go through the Bible is that we might feed you so that we all get fed spiritually and have a strong, healthy, vibrant walk. That's what God wants from our lives. Well, there's three sections. Do you remember what they were of Ephesians? The first section was the wealth of the believer. The second section, the walk of the believer. The third section, the warfare of the believer. That's the outline of the letter. That's the theme in Paul's mind. He tells us our wealth, who we are in Christ, seated in heavenly places. We're predestined, we're redeemed, we're forgiven, we're called and unified into one body, the body of Christ. Twenty-seven times he uses that phrase, in Christ, or in him, or in Christ Jesus. That's our wealth, our position. Beginning in chapter 4, and this is a typical Paul pattern, he shifts to our walk from what we know to what we do. The first part of the book is informational. The second part is applicational. Therein lies the strength. Jesus said to his disciples, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Happy are you if you do them. That's the walk of the believer. It is a Paul pattern. If you think back to Romans chapter 12, he does the same thing. Though it's a longer letter. He spends 11 chapters laying a doctrinal foundation, but then he goes in chapter 12 from doctrine to duty. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you would present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is your reasonable service. It's the same idea here. Look at the first verse of chapter 4. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. So we're rounding a corner, aren't we? We're changing the tone of his letter. And he's going to sort of press this application. Okay, great. It's time to live it now, you guys. That's what he's saying. It's time to live it. The first three chapters of Ephesians, I've heard great things from a lot of you. Oh, how we love the book of Ephesians, I've heard. And so do I. It's great. It's great to be reminded of these truths, isn't it? But I liken chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians sort of like the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember the disciples saw Moses and Elijah and of course the greatest of all, Jesus Christ, transfigured before them. 
and Jesus' garments were as bright as the sun. They were absolutely amazed. They loved what they saw. They loved where they were. So much so that Peter cried out with such excitement, Lord, it's good that we are here. Let's build three condominiums. Tabernacles is the text, but I'm modernizing it. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. What was he saying? Lord, it's great to be right here. Let's just stay right here. Let's make this more permanent. Let's build something that's permanent. This is so good. Why go back down the hill? And we might be tempted to feel the same way. Hey, this has been so great learning what we have, who we are, and all that God has done for us. Can't we just stay here? Can't you just tell me more of how much God loves me and more of what he's done for me and more of all that stuff? Well, as good as it is, as foundational as that is, we need to do more. We need to shift now. And taking all of that doctrine translated into duty. We need to take the truths that we've learned on the mountaintop and translate it into the shoe leather of the valley. So we begin in the heavenlies. We're in heavenly places. Now, chapter 4, verse 1, he brings us back down to earth. And he talks about the walk. And notice what he calls it. I, therefore, there's the transition, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you or beg you or entreat you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you are called, with all lowliness, gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all, and in you all. So he's from Texas, isn't he? <laughs> he says we had a walk worthy. I want to define that for you. I'm going to tell you what it is to walk worthy tonight, according to our text. A worthy walk is defined by consistency. That's the idea behind it. That's what it means. That's how you define a worthy walk. Consistency. Being genuine. Being true to your calling. The word that he uses for worthy is the word axios in Greek. It has to do with weight. Picture a scale and you balance out both sides of the scale so that one side of the scale weighs as much as the other side. That, that's what the word literally means. Let your walk weigh as much would be the literal translation of this. A worthy walk. We use the term in a number of ways. We could say, well, you know, this guy who works for me is worthy of his wage. That's how Jesus used the term once. He said the laborer is worthy of his wages. That is, what he produces in terms of work equals to what I pay him. It balances out. He didn't sit around all day. I pay him a wage, and he's worthy of it. He weighs as much. He corresponds to it. 
We might say that person's worthy of honor. That is, his accomplishments weigh as much as the accolades that are paid to him. We talk about a worthy walk. What do we mean? It's, it's a plea for consistency. It's a plea to dispense with hypocrisy and bring in integrity. So that what you say you are that is a Christian, you live like that. You act like that. You perform, not in the bad sense, but in the true sense, genuinely. That's the idea. That's how it's defined. It's defined by consistency. Walk worthy of the Lord. You know it to be true. There's nothing worse than hypocrisy. And the world looks for it. That we know. They study us, don't we? And they'll say things. How can you say that as a Christian? How can you do that as a Christian? And some people, let's face it, man, they, they give Christians a bad name. Jesse James claimed to be a Christian. He was a bank robber and a murderer. And there's a story that Jesse James robbed a bank, shot the teller, and then that afternoon was baptized in the Kearney County Baptist Church. Another occasion, shot a bank teller in robbing another bank. That evening, taught choir practice at his local church. Loved, he said, loved to sing the old hymns of the church. He loved church, he said, loved to attend church, but it interfered with his profession so often. Many Sundays, he was previously occupied robbing banks and murdering people. It's a tough job. It's a tough life. Somebody's got to do it. That's not a worthy walk, is it? That, that is his profession doesn't weigh as much as his life. It's out of balance. So it's defined by consistency. That's the idea here. Um, would you just, uh, for the sake of comparison, keep your finger here and turn right to 1 John chapter 1. I think what John does for us is sort of put flesh on this concept of a worthy walk in such a way that we'll, we'll really get the intent. What John does is he differentiates between what a person says about himself or herself and what a person does. And sometimes they're two vastly different things. I grew up saying I was a Christian. I was not a Christian. What I said and how I lived were so totally different, they didn't match. Chapter 1, verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him, isn't that a lovely thing to say? I have fellowship with God. Great thing to be able to say. But if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Go down to chapter 2, verse 3. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly, the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. 
four out of every five American citizens claim to be Christian. 35% of the American population claims to be a born-again Christian. The question is, where's the worthy walk? Where's the consistency? Irma Bombeck, who was a great wordsmith and a, 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 had a great way with the short story, etc., she said, never go to a doctor whose houseplants have died. <laughs> Good advice. This guy can't even keep alive a little plant. I don't think you want him operating on you. It was just insightful. Never go to a doctor whose houseplants have died. You might say along the same vein, why would you go to someone who says they're a Christian if their lifestyle betrays what they say they are? An inconsistent believer. So he's begging, he's beseeching. And notice what he calls himself in verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. Now he's a prisoner of Rome. But he sees himself in that high privileged state as being a prisoner of Christ. Jesus caught me. I'm his slave. He is telling them, I'm sold out. My life is on the line for him, even to the point of being in prison. I say I'm a Christian and I live like it, even to the point of chains. That's a worthy walk. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you have a walk worthy of, his, of the calling with which you are called. So number one, a worthy walk is defined by consistency. Number two, a worthy walk is demonstrated by humility. That's the gist of the next couple of verses. Verse 2. How do you walk? With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So he goes from a definition now to a demonstration. This is how you do it, in humility. And all of these words, there's really four descriptions in verse 2. You could sum them all up with one word, humility. Now let me tell you the emphasis so you know where Paul is going, what's going on in the apostles' brain cells. He's been speaking about the body of Christ, has he not? Jew and Gentile, so different but called together in one body. The emphasis here is how to walk with other people. Walking in such a way that you help the person you're sitting next to tonight or living with at home or are friends with at the office, helping them to have a consistent walk as well. And so it's demonstrated by humility. Notice the first word. With all lowliness. Did you know that the Greeks despised lowliness? The Greeks saw lowliness as a bad trait? Only slaves, they said, should cower in lowliness. But the average Greek citizen, said they, should be confident, self-assertive, self-reliant. Oh, they would have loved the gods of the American pantheon. They would have loved Clint Eastwood. Go ahead, make my day. The Greeks would have gone, yeah. They would have loved Arnold Schwarzenegger, this independent superhero. I'll be back. Lowliness was reserved for the slaves, not the citizen. But Paul puts it here as part of the demonstration in humility with all lowliness. 
the way of Jesus was not the way of the Greeks. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am lowly. Philippians 2 describes him as being in the form of God. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. He poured himself out to the very last drop. He became obedient even to the point of death, the death of the cross. So this is a trait of Jesus Christ, so it wasn't a trait of the Greeks. Look at the second word, gentleness. Some translations put it meekness. You know, I've discovered something about Christians. They think in their minds, unless usually informed otherwise, we think that meekness means weakness. Oh, yes, I'm supposed to be meek. I'll be a doormat for Jesus and let people walk on me and I'll just let them do anything they want and never really speak up or assert any kind of truth. That's not meekness. The word meekness, praos, or gentleness translated here, means power, power, strength, under control. Ancient people used to describe stallions, wild stallions that had been broken and made useful with the word praos. They're strong, but they're, they're in control. It's controlled strength. Powerful words that would soothe the strong emotions of a person were called praos, gentle, meek words, persuasive, but it was power under control. Ointment that was rubbed on fever sores to alleviate the fever and assuage the pain were called praos. That's gentleness or meekness with all lowliness and gentleness. How gentle are you? How gentle are you at home? Dads with their kids, husbands with wives, wives with husbands. I could cover the gamut. How gentle are we? That's how we demonstrate our worthy walk. A little girl was called upon to write a little essay about the Quakers for her class. And she began by saying, Quakers are gentle people who refuse to fight, but are kind to one another. And then she said, my mother is a Quaker, my father is not. <laughs> she knew there was a difference between mom and dad. One was gentle, one was not. Look at the third word, long-suffering. That's a good word. It's a great Bible word, and I've seen it translated a number of different ways, I think, insufficiently. I think the best word is long-suffering. And this is how I describe the word, metaphorically. Long-suffering is letting your motor idle when you feel like stripping the gears. You're pent up with passion or anger, and you just want to lay rubber, man. You want to say something that'll cut the other person, but you're long-suffering. Again, I find the words in the original very telling, macrothumia, or macrothumia would be the proper pronunciation of long-suffering. It comes from two words that you put them together. One is long and one is suffering or tempered. Macro means long or large. Thumia literally means heat or heated, hot, thermal. And it's usually translated temper. It means long 
tempered. It means you don't just blow up. You let the fuse kind of simmer a while. You just let it just stay there. You don't, you don't lay rubber yet. You just idle the motor. God is slow to anger, rich in mercy, the Bible says. And that's what we're told to do. Be swift to hear. Be slow to speak. Be slow to wrath. Don't get ticked off easily. Don't be reactionary. That's long-suffering, one of the traits of God. And then the fourth one that describes humility is bearing with one another in love. Bearing, putting up with aggravating people. Let's just call it what it is. Have you ever met an aggravating person? You know what an aggravating person is. It's somebody who's not you. It's somebody who's not exactly like you are, who doesn't see things like you see them. They aggravate you. Why can't they be smart like me? Why can't they drive like me? Why can't they pick and choose like me? They're so aggravating. We all have different personalities. What do you do with them? You bear with them. You let the little stuff be little stuff. No big deal. You bear with one another or you put up with them in love. 1 Corinthians 13, you know what it says. Love suffers long and is kind. Same idea, but just sort of long-suffering, but just sort of fleshed out. Aristotle was an interesting character. He used to say that you shouldn't tolerate people's inconsistencies or people's blunders in your life, that if somebody snaps at you, you snap back and retaliate hard. That was Aristotle. People look up, oh, Aristotle, he's so brilliant. Really, anybody can do that. That's not hard. Go to see what Jesus said. That's hard. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, anybody slaps you on one cheek, give them the other cheek. Love those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Really? I didn't grow up that way, did you? I had three brothers. We slugged each other. But then I met Jesus, and I saw a man who, from the cross, as he was hanging there, didn't say, I'll be back in three days. And then you'll get yours. Wait till I get back. You haven't seen judgment till you see me when I come back. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Words of great compassion. Words of bearing with one another in love. So, what is it to have a worthy walk? Well, it's defined by consistency. It's demonstrated by humility. Third, it's dignified by unity. It's dignified by unity. He puts all of that together now. He defines it. He tells us sort of the, the humility bit, the long-suffering bit, the gentleness bit. Now he flushes that out even more. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Seven times, the emphasis is there. Seven times he says one. He's emphasizing unity now, isn't he? One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Seven times he uses the word one. Three of those times he refers to God. And I want you to notice them. He says there's one spirit. That's got to refer to the Holy Spirit. The translators believe that. That's why they capitalize it in your text. One capital S, Spirit, the Holy Spirit. 
Verse 5, one Lord. That's Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. That's how the early church understood him. Verse 6, one God and Father of all. That's God the Father. So in this little litany of unity, one, 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 he mentions God three times, Spirit, Son, and Father. He is focusing on the Trinity. In other words, our unity should be based on the Trinity. As the Father, Son, and Spirit get along in love and in unity and in purpose together, so should we. Now just follow his line of thinking. Verse 4, there's one body because there's one Spirit. There's one Holy Spirit who touches young and old, male and female, computer nerd and musician, somebody who has a lot of money, somebody who is economically deprived, all different colors, all different races, Jew and Gentile, places us in one body because it's one Spirit, one Holy Spirit. Now, there's one faith, verse 5, and one baptism because there's one Lord Jesus Christ. We all believe in Him. We're baptized into Jesus Christ. And then one God and the Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. The church should be unified. I want to explain that. When we speak of unity, what should that look like? Well, it doesn't necessarily mean an ecumenical unity. It doesn't necessarily mean that every church in this city and in this state will agree on absolutely every single thing in the Bible or in the Christian faith. It doesn't mean at all that if you're a Christian or a Buddhist or a Muslim or New Age or pantheistic or polytheistic, that you just kind of all get together in one big circle and look at each other and go, whatever you're into, dude, just believe sincerely, dude, long enough, and it's okay, dude, because we all believe in a higher power. That's all you need. That's not what he's referring to, and that's not unity in the Bible. So unity doesn't mean an ecumenical unity. Number two, it, it doesn't refer to uniformity. Uniformity is something that is forced. This is something that is agreed upon on and voluntary. Uh, we endeavor to keep the unity. I'm encouraged to know that the early church didn't always get along with each other. It encourages me a little bit to know that there was an argument in chapter 15 of the book of Acts. It encourages me a little bit to know that Paul and Barnabas didn't see eye to eye and had to split up, though they loved God passionately and they, I believe, loved each other. They just didn't agree on certain things. And you know, there are churches across town that I don't agree with on every point of doctrine, but I love them in the Lord. They are my brothers and sisters. I thank God for them. And in true unity, you can make a difference between what is essential Christian doctrine and what is non-essential Christian doctrine. And we divide, we divide over the essentials of the historic Christian faith. We dare to draw the line in the sand that would say, here's what the Bible says about God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, etc. And these are the fundamentals and these are the basics. And if you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. But having said all that, once you're inside that box of the essentials, there's lots of leeway. There's lots of leeway. There are premillennialists. There are amillennialists. There are postmillennialists. There are 
pre-tribulationists, there are mid-tribulationists, there are post-tribulationists. There are fuzzy fundamentalists. There are kooky charismatics. There are all sorts of flavors of believers. And that's okay. It really is okay. Every time I go by a church that I know is a Christian church that truly preaches the Bible, though there are some slight differences, I pray for the church, I pray for the pastor, I make it a daily habit. Bless them, Lord, inasmuch as they preach the gospel. And if they don't, don't bless them. But I ask God to bless them. And honestly, I thank God that there are so many fine churches in our community. If there weren't, they'd all come here <laughs> or there or whatever place it might be. There is so much variety to meet a variety of needs. And so, having said that, I am to endeavor to maintain that unity in the bond of peace to embrace somebody, though we don't agree on all the points, as a brother in Christ. So I love what Augustine said. St. Augustine, he's often called. Augustine, I call him. He said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. It's a good thing to remember. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. That's the crux of what he's saying. One God and Father of all, verse 6, who is above all. He's above all, meaning he's sovereign. He's the boss. He, he rules the universe. He sets, he sets the, the pace, the tone. He's above all. So that's his sovereignty. He is through all. That's his agency. He works through you and through you and through me in his different ways to accomplish his purpose. And then, in you all, he's inside of us. That's his residency. That's where he lives. He lives in all of us. We're his temple, the Bible says, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to read down from verse 7 to verse 16, and then we're going to close with that. And this is the, the fourth mark of what it is to walk worthy. Let, let's read it, and then we'll tell you what it is. To each one, verse 7. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? And he who descended also is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be t children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness by which they lay in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. 
A worthy walk is displayed by variety. Consistency, that's the first one. But here it is, variety. Consistency, humility, unity, variety. And we're not going to get all into it tonight. We're going to go more over this section next time because there's lots of questions people have. There's some controversial texts. But notice there's a list of different kinds of giftings here for different activities that the Lord wants to do. Verse 11, he gives some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. But all of those gifts are for, verse 12, the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. There's variety in every church. Just as there's a variety of churches in every community, right here in this group, we are oh so different from each other. And what that means is, in a good sense, is there is an aspect of the life of Christ that only you can show forth by the unique giftedness that you have. So we can see Jesus Christ, a part of his personality, uniquely in you and uniquely in all of us. There is diversity in the body of Christ. Don't you love it? God doesn't mass produce everybody who looks alike, thinks alike, votes alike, reads the same version of the Bible alike, how boring that would be, or does the ministry exactly like another person, like a snowflake, so different. But, here's the point, but to make diversity into unity we all have to be involved, all of us using our gifts together to glorify Christ. Not for our own benefit, but to glorify Christ. Then you can have diversity, but at the same time, a really unified working. Because what is our objective? Our objective would be his objective. Till we all come to the unity of the faith, verse 13, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature, that's the idea, a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Every one of you has a ministry. Some of you haven't discovered it yet. Some of you are in the testing process. You're just sort of trying out your, your wings, so to speak. You're trying to see where you're supposed to fit in. You're testing your gift. You're asking people, hey, what do you, what do you think I'm good at? Where do you think I ought to be involved? But please be involved. Please be involved. Oh, but there's such a big church, and there's so many people doing so many things. But because it's big, there are more needs here. And more people that could fall through the cracks. And it takes an army of sensitive, committed people to look and assess the needs and go, Ooh, I see a need that isn't being met. Because as soon as you see the need, we're going to plug you in. That's how most ministries start here. Skip, there's a need that I see in this church that isn't being met. What is it? And they tell me, I go, Wow, I didn't even see that. Thank you for bringing that to our attention. Yeah, what are you going to do about it? I think we're going to commission you <laughs> to help meet that need. Why me? Well, nobody saw that until you brought it to our attention, so obviously the Lord has placed that on your heart. And chances are, with your ability to be able to see that, you're probably gifted to meet that. Oh, I don't know about that. Give it a try. More people in our fellowship have gone into the ministry and many into full-time ministry with that very kind of a scenario. There's a little poem. We must be careful to avoid the content of this. It says, I've been a dead weight for many years around the church's neck. I've let others carry me and always pay the check. 
I've had my name upon the rolls for years and years gone by. I've criticized and grumbled too. Nothing could satisfy. I've been a dead weight long enough upon the church's back. Beginning now, I'm going to take a wholly different tact. I'm going to pray and pay and work and carry loads instead and not have others carry me like people do the dead. Can I say that people love to carry you? There are times you need to be carried. There's times I'll need to be carried. But don't make that, that a lifestyle. Learn to carry others. Learn to maintain this unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, we're going to sort of end on that note. We'll get back to more of it next week. But keep in mind that that central theme of a worthy walk, and you may want to go to bed tonight with that little thing pondering, pounding through your brain. How much does my walk weigh? Does my lifestyle, how I really am, how I really act, what I really think, how I really live, does that match? Does it weigh as much in the scale as what I say I am? That's a worthy walk. Does it weigh as much? Axios, weight, balanced. Does it match? We all see people who mismatch in a number of ways. We just take clothing. They wear plaid upon plaid. Doesn't work. Just a little fashion police note. Doesn't work. (laughs) Or shorts with dark dress socks pulled up to the knees and dress shoes. Doesn't work. Doesn't match. Now, I'm not here to be the fashion police. I'm just here to say that in our walk, there should be a match. And that's the theme here. And notice the emphasis is once again in the body, the whole body. Help others around you walk worthy. Love people enough to show them accountability. Hey, would you be accountable uh, to, to me or can I be accountable to you in this area? Can we call each other and meet together and pray together? I'm having a struggle with this. Could I just share that plainly with you? Could you help me with that? It's one of the best things that could ever happen in any church is for that kind of candor to exist. Among leadership, in marriages, among friends, small groups. And so we're to help each other walk worthy. I found an interesting um, little story about an outfit in Santa Monica, California. You know how most of our feet, um, most people's feet match. Generally, we may have one size that's just maybe a half size less, but there are some people whose feet really don't match. Like you could have a a size uh, six on one side and a size seven and a half or eight on the other. And that presents a problem in buying shoes. So this outfit in Santa Monica, California, gives you shoe partners. It's It's a consortium and a network around the world matching people who have the problem. So let's say your right foot is a size six, your left foot is a size seven and a half or eight. You find somebody whose left side is a size six and the right is a size seven and a half or eight. You get to know each other. You call each other on the phone when you need new shoes. You agree on a style. (laughs) And you buy shoes and you swap the other one. Isn't that a cool system? 
the body of Christ, you don't have it all. I don't have it all, but all together we have it all. Every gift, everything needed for mature growth. And that's why your diversity, what you have to bring to the table, Christian, is vital.